the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. I just returned from the 2019 National Rifle Association convention in Indianapolis. It was inspiring and joyful. People from all around the country, young, old, married, single, families of two, families of ten, people of all colors, faiths, and political affiliations, all with a unique story as to why they arm themselves. For those who don't know, the NRA is America's most prominent defender of our Second Amendment rights, boasting close to five million members. They're also the largest firearms education organization in the world. Once a year at their annual convention, 80,000 sportsmen and women gather to showcase and explore nearly 15 acres of guns and gear. It's an incredible spectacle. But scoping out the latest sportsman wares is not the only thing that happens. They also influence public policy. It's a good thing we have so many committed people on our side. Because never in the history of the NRA have so many powerful forces attacked us on so many different fronts. In my 25 years fighting this fight, I've never seen the level of enthusiasm, energy, unmatchable money, and dishonesty from the other side. They truly believe they're on the verge of accomplishing their ultimate goal, destroying the Second Amendment. That's Chris Cox, the executive director of the NRA Institute for Legislative Action. He drives the legislative agenda for the NRA, and they have the ear of several prominent government figures. Here's Senator Ted Cruz. One of the things we understand is the difference between good guys and bad guys. This is something that the left and the press, they can't make this fundamental distinction. Good guys, law-abiding Americans, it is freedom. It is our right to defend our families. Bad guys, if you are a violent criminal, if you are a murderer, we're going to come down on you, we're going to take your guns from you, and we're going to put you in jail. I am proud to stand with the men and women gathered here. I'm proud to stand with you in support of the Second Amendment, of the Bill of Rights, of the Constitution, of the United States of America. Vice President Pence also stopped by. You know, the president and I stand with the NRA because, like all of you, we stand for freedom. The right of law-abiding citizens to keep and bear arms is a freedom that is at the heart of the American story. Our founders won our independence with the power of their ideas and with the powder in their muskets. Our pioneers won the West with their daring, their courage, and their Springfields, Winchesters, and Colts. Our forebears fought our nation's wars defended our way of life with the skills they learned on the rifle range in a deer stand at the knee of a father, a mother, or a grandparent back home. And in our own day, there are no greater champions of America's tradition of responsible gun ownership than all of you and the five million proud men and women of the NRA. And of course, President Trump used the occasion to shake things up once again. 
Under my administration, we will never surrender American sovereignty to anyone. We will never allow foreign bureaucrats to trample on your Second Amendment freedom. And that is why my administration will never ratify the U.N. Arms Trade Treaty. I hope you have. By taking these actions, we are reaffirming that American liberty is sacred and that American citizens live by American laws, not the laws of foreign countries. Thank you. Clearly, this is more than a pro-gun rally. President Trump used this occasion to draw a line in the sand and stand up for the Second Amendment rights of all Americans, while at the same time unchaining us from a treaty that would unnecessarily constrain us while having no real impact. And that's the focus of this week's episode. So what is the UN Arms Trade Treaty? What does it mean for Americans? What are the next steps following the president's speech at this year's NRA convention? Dr. Ted Broman is a senior research fellow in Anglo-American relations in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. He's been tracking this issue since 2009, and this week, he explains. Dr. Broman, thank you so much for being here today, Uh, and I want to get right into it. Can you just explain uh, the basics of the arms trade treaty for me? Sure. First, maybe I should explain what a treaty is. A treaty is just a fancy word for a contract between nations. It's a contract between the U.S. and one or more other nations in just the same way that all of us in our regular life might sign a contract in business or any other area. So that's not a complicated idea. The Arms Trade Treaty was supposed to be a contract that regulated how the U.S. and other countries out there imported and exported conventional weapons. And conventional weapons just means anything that's not a weapon of mass destruction. So this treaty covered everything from pistols all the way up to battleships. And you've made the argument, and and by the way, I'm going to link to your uh, report and your recent Forbes op-ed in the show notes, so please uh, feel free to log on and look at this. Um, But you've made the argument that these treaties are nothing more than attempts from the left to change U.S. policy. And so how 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 do they accomplish this? This is, unfortunately, a strategy that the left has been very successful at adopting over the last couple of decades. What they do is they negotiate a treaty. Sometimes they do it through the United Nations. Sometimes they do it outside the United Nations. And the treaty requires the U.S. to comply with, in this case, international law. And that's a term that's used in the treaty itself. Well, international law means lots of things to lots of people, and there's legitimate dispute over what it means. In the good old days, international law meant what nations repeatedly and customarily do. And in that sense, international law appears in the Constitution of the United States, and it's an idea that we accept. Unfortunately, to the left, what international law means is things law professors say, votes the U.N. General Assembly has taken, things that they like in general. 
So the strategy for the arms trade treaty was very simple. Get the U.S. signature on a treaty that contains this flexible concept of international law and then change the meaning of the term international law in order to change U.S. policy that derives from the treaty. It's very clever. It's very subtle. And I'm afraid over time it has generally in other areas been quite effective. Would this treaty benefit so-called bad actors throughout the world, do you think? Yeah, it benefits bad actors in a number of ways. First, this treaty and all of its advocates only focus on the bad things that the United States in particular and a few European nations and Israel, particularly Israel, do. So they almost never talk about Iran or Russia or China, to name three very bad actors out there. And when they do talk about them, it's interesting how they do it. They will say something like, barrel bombs have gone off in Syria. In other words, they use the passive voice. They don't explain who is killing civilians. They just say, oh, civilians have been killed. So whereas when they talk about the United States, they always attribute direct responsibility to us. So this is a group of people who is very unhappy talking about the actual evils of Russia, China, and Iran, and quite happy to talk about all the bad things we've supposedly done. The other way it helps bad actors in the world is a little more subtle. If you make it really hard for people to buy weapons from the United States or from some of our European allies— they're not going to give up buying weapons. They're going to turn and buy them from Russia or China. So it actually feeds the genuinely undesirable part of the international arms market by incentivizing everyone out there to buy from the worst actors in the world instead of from us with our responsible policies and our good oversight practices. Okay, we're going to get back to our conversation with Ted in just a minute, but I just wanted to make sure that you're all signed up for Heritage's weekly email called The Agenda. So every Monday, we send out an email that walks through three of the top issues in Congress and in the news cycle and what the policy positions conservatives are taking. We also highlight important interviews on cable news from our experts and really interesting events that we're doing here at Heritage. You can sign up by emailing me at managingeditor at heritage.org, or you can visit our website, heritage.org. You can scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page and look for the subscribe to email update section on the right-hand side. Okay, back to our discussion. Dr. Broman, many on the left are saying that this would have no impact on our fundamental right to keep and bear arms. But you disagree, um, and and this is definitely relevant to why President Trump announced this um, at the NRA convention. So why why do you disagree with that? I, I should say that my first and foremost objection to this treaty has always been that I think that it's bad for our foreign policy. I don't And I've never described this treaty as a U.N. gun grab, as some of my allies on this side have described it. That said, I do think it poses several risks for gun rights in the United States. Let me mention two of them. First, many of the nations behind this treaty want to extend the idea of international trade to cover all domestic firearm sales. 
on the grounds that any firearm that's sold in the United States could, in theory, at some point cross the U.S. border and become part of international trade. Therefore, if I go to a gun store in Ohio and buy a pistol there, that is as much international trade as the U.S. selling uh, you know, 5,000 rifles to our allies in Britain. Well, this is ridiculous, but it's part of the argument. The other way that I think it's potentially bad is that the U.S. firearms market is very international. Roughly a third of firearms sold in the United States are imported, and it would be very hard indeed to find a significant firearms manufacturer in the U.S. who doesn't use imported parts or components. Everyone out there is global now, even if, in theory, the firearm is American. So you can do significant damage to the firearms market in the United States by simply controlling imports and exports, even if you don't end up banning anything. Now, is that a Second Amendment problem? It's a bit like me saying, you're free to own a printing press. The price for that printing press is $10 million. Have I impringed your freedom of speech? No, I haven't impinged you on your freedom of speech, but I've made it incredibly hard for you to actually exercise it. That's sort of my concern uh, with the ATT and the firearms market. Do we need this treaty to better our national security? Of course we don't. And even its advocates inside the government will admit, and sometimes they will even admit on the record, that we do not need this treaty to run our own import and export control systems. We already have these systems. They are not perfect, but generally speaking, they are very effective and very well administered. So the best defense that insiders will offer and have offered to me of this treaty is that they will say, of course, it's never going to change Russia or China or Iran. But there are nations out there that are sometimes a little bit responsible, and maybe the treaty will encourage them to be a little bit more responsible. That really is the best defense that that anyone can offer of it. The problem with that is that, A, it's a trust-me argument. There's no proof that this has worked whatsoever. And secondly, the treaty is definitely aimed at affecting the United States, first and foremost— So I am much less concerned with trying to put pressure on, let's say, Austria than I am keeping pressure off the United States. So who's behind this? Who's pushing this? Um, I I know that you've mentioned a few people, but but is it is it a like a coalesced thing? It is a coalesced thing. It's a coalition called Control Arms, which is a very large umbrella NGO which contains a a very large number. It was over 600 sub-NGOs the last time I checked from all around the world. What does that mean, NGO? Are those governments or are those... Yeah, the NGO is just a fancy word for non-governmental organization. Uh, The Heritage Foundation is a non-governmental organization. Uh, So is the uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Uh, And there are thousands and thousands of other ones. However, in the international realm... NGOs frequently tend to be left-wing and actually very, very progressive. So the NGOs behind the Arms Trade Treaty are on the far left, which shows up in their political beliefs, the kind of things they support, and their anti-American bias. 
Dr. Broman, you say that this puts the U.S. and the treaty on the side of tyrants, on the side of the bleeding they impose. Why? Well, one thing that, to my knowledge, every U.S. president since the end of World War II has done at least once is to support rebels trying to overthrow an authoritarian or totalitarian government. We didn't really have a term for this until President Reagan came along and he called it the Reagan Doctrine or people called it the Reagan Doctrine on his behalf. I think he was too modest to name it after himself. So we should have the freedom to continue to support rebel groups against totalitarian governments in precisely the same way that we belatedly and ineffectively supported the good Syrian rebels against the Assad regime in Syria under President Obama. President Clinton did this. President Reagan did this. Every president has done this. Well, if you take the arms trade treaty seriously, the U.S. would be banned from doing that because every country out there has got its own import and export controls. Who are we to subvert the Syrian government's import controls by sending guns to their rebels? That becomes a legal problem all of a sudden. And it's not just me who says that. The treaty's advocates come out and say that arming the Syrian rebels would have been illegal under the treaty. Now, we can have an argument about whether this is the right or the wrong thing to do from a policy point of view. And, you know, sometimes I agree with what the treaty advocates say from a policy level. But these are not legal questions and they should not be made into legal questions. These are always decisions that should be made ultimately by the president after a political debate and an internal discussion on the basis of what do we think we can do to advance our interests. They are not legal questions which always have a clear black or white yes or no answer. Last question. Why is this bad diplomacy? It's bad diplomacy because it's a terrible treaty. It's a treaty that contains absolutely no definitions. It has, thank God, no enforcement mechanism. It has no criteria for success. It contains absolutely none of the standard requirements of a treaty. It is a promise to be good later on. Uh, it It is simply a aspirational document. It is about as valid as in treaty terms as a promise from a six-year-old saying a week before Christmas, I promise I'll be good after Christmas if only you get me a Nintendo Switch. You know, I'll be so good next year. I promise you. Well, you know, that's sweet, but it's purely aspirational. It has no connection to their actual behavior after they get the Nintendo Switch. And that is the problem with the treaty. Every single nation out there in the world can improve its import and export control systems if they want to right now. They don't need a treaty. So why does the treaty exist? Well, the treaty exists, unfortunately, because many nations out there in the world don't actually want to improve their systems. And the treaty will do nothing to force them or encourage them to do so. Dr. Broman, thank you so much for giving us your time. Thank you. And thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Heritage Explains. As always, I'm going to put all the links to the articles and information that we use to craft this episode in the show notes. 
You can find those notes in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're using to listen to podcasts. So for example, if you're using iTunes, double tap on the title of today's show and you will see more notes with links there. Also, we love your feedback. And you can tell us what you think of this week's episode by emailing managingeditor at heritage.org. Michelle's up next week. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it going by visiting www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift.